Good morning. How are you guys doing? All right. What's the uh, what's the chemical? I was asking my wife this. What's my what's the chemical that turkey has in it that makes you sleepy? That thing. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. I feel like there's still a little uh, effect of that. I notice people come in a little bit sedated. And uh, the reason that I want to bring that up is that the first part of Ephesians 1, which is what we've been going through, this is week five of Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, it is actually meant to be a very exciting, very uplifting, very passionate praise to God. It is uh, 14 verses. And Paul, in sort of this, this ancient uh, hymn-like way, is going to give us 10 reasons that we should be thankful, that we should be praising God. So we're ending right here after Thanksgiving, uh, at the end of five weeks, on studying 14 verses that cover 10 fundamental reasons, core theological doctrinal truths that you and I should consider to keep us grateful people. And they're meant to be exciting. They're meant to be uh, uplifting. They're meant to be passionate. Uh, if you've ever gone to see like a comedian or, or a, maybe a concert, they have a hype man. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they have somebody that comes out and he's just there to pump up the crowd. And so Paul is his own hype man before this, the rest of this letter, which has a lot of application for the church. And he's going to start with saying, listen, I need you to get fired up before we get into this. And in order to get fired up, you should consider what God has done for you. And so in 14 verses, he's going to give you 10 fundamental things that are, that are life-changing. They are for the believer. They are not for the unbeliever. They're, and over and over again, he's going to say, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And he's trying to get you to understand that there is reason to be thankful. There is reason to be grateful. There is reason to live in the light of the gospel unlike any other person would be willing to live. Are you excited yet? Okay. All right, I, I, I know that I've got to counteract that turkey, and so if I've got to use extra volume in order to just flush all of those chemicals out of your system, I will. All right, here we go, here we go. We're going to cover 11 through 14 today. It says this, this is the promise and the guarantee. This is the end of this hymn that he has created in Ephesians 1. In him, there's that phrase again, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. All right. Uh, the first three reasons that you and I were given in Ephesians 1 to be grateful, to praise God, were about God the Father, and they were that he blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that he chose you and I before the foundation of the world, and that he adopted us as sons and daughters of the king. There's a transition then where we begin to look at the work of the Son, so God the Son, he says, God redeemed us through Jesus. That's the fourth reason we're to give praise. 
And we, and we looked a few weeks ago at this concept of redemption, that we don't even understand the full weight of that word because we use it differently now, but it would have been to, to buy someone out of slavery, to buy them out of bondage, to basically buy their freedom. And then on top of that, the next reason, he forgave us because of Jesus' blood. And if that weren't enough, he then lavished his grace upon us made known the mystery of his will and provides an internal, eternal inheritance for us. So the first three were about God the Father. The next five involve God the Son. And these last two reasons that we're going to cover today are about God the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. All right, uh, Paul makes a little transition here in these last couple verses where he begins to use uh, two different types of terms. He begins to say, we and you, and, and he does that just at the end of this hymn, and he's actually talking about now the difference between Jewish Christians who have held to the Mosaic law and then Gentile Christians whom he's actually addressing in this letter to Ephesus. And so he's actually saying, when he says, uh, we have been obtained an inheritance having been predestined, he's actually talking about this inheritance initially that was the, the plan of God going to the people when they were in Egypt and saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. You got, we remember this from the Old Testament, right? It's during all the plagues and Pharaoh not a lot of nods, a lot of turkey coma going on. Okay. Throughout the Old Testament, God talks about the work that he's going to do through the Israelites in uh, Deuteronomy 4.20. He says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. In Deuteronomy 9, 29, he says, for they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. This is God demonstrating and displaying his faithfulness through a very unfaithful people, the Israelites. In Zechariah 2, 12, he says, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is God's plan. So Paul is tying God's plan all the way back to the Israelites and he's saying, listen, God promised us this inheritance. This was part of his plan from the very, very beginning when he brought us out of Egypt, when he gave us the, the Ten Commandments, when he taught us how to be faithful to God. This was part of the plan. This, was, this is not plan B. This is not the next plan. I read a really good analogy uh, in one of the commentaries. It says, if you, if you read a good murder mystery or you see a well-done suspense movie, chances are you don't know who done it until the end. Anyone ever watch one of those movies? It's a movie years ago called The Usual Suspects where uh, a guy, Kevin Spacey, sits in an office and he, he tells his whole story that you see reenacted. I won't ruin the end for you, but trust me, there's a twist at the end and you're not ready for it. Those are great movies. The author or screenwriter gives you clues all along, but you probably won't catch on until the final climactic scene when all the tensions are resolved and all the loose ends are tied up. That's what Paul portrays as God unfolds his plan for the world. We probably won't truly grasp God's plan until the final scene, but he has certainly given us plenty of clues. And unlike a suspense novel in God's great drama of redemption, he revealed the main character early on. It was Jesus. It's always been Jesus, the unique son of God. 
When you feel as though your world is too confusing or completely out of control, remember, God is sovereign. He is in charge. God's purpose to save you cannot be thwarted. No matter what evil Satan may bring, God has it all worked out. The ending is already written. And for the Christian, it is a happy one. It is a happy one. One of the most frequent mistakes that you and I make is that we treat God like he is a human, like he's fallible, like he's inconsistent, like he's like you and I. God has always been in control. This has always been God's plan. God has never looked at your life and thought, man, he, he, she really screwed up. I'm going to have to change my plan. I'm about to tweak some things now that you messed up so badly. God's never done that because he's always known. He chose you knowing what your life would be like. He's never had to adapt his plan. See, I have to, as a dad, I have to adapt my plan because I have kids and they mess up all the time. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Constantly got to go fix the mess. Gotta, gotta, God has never had to change his plan because he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's always been in control. We feel in the midst of the storms as if we're out of control, so God must be too. It's never. He set this plan in motion before the foundations of the earth because that's who he is. And that's the God we serve. That's a reason to be excited. When life is not going as you expected it, you should realize that it's going exactly like God expected it. Verse 13 says this, in him, again, in him, in Christ, you also, now he's speaking to the Gentiles. So he looks back at the history of God. He looks back at how God has taken a people, these Israelites, whom he says is not a great people. It's not a, a big people. It's not an impressive people. And honestly, it's a pretty unfaithful people. We, we should take great comfort in that. And he chooses them. He, he promises an inheritance. And then Paul's going to say, and not just the Jews, but in him, you also, Gentile, non-Jewish person, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, guarantee, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, in Greek, this word seal is pronounced sfragizo. Sfragizo. I really like saying the word sfragizo because it sounds kind of Italian. Sfragizo. And what it means, does it not sfragizo? I feel like, you know, a, a little, just a little Italian when I say it. In, in, in ancient times, though, this word seal meant something a little bit different than it means probably today. In ancient times, when you would seal a letter, particularly a, a letter with a legal record or a command in it, you would, you would take wax and you'd melt it over the envelope or the document, and then you'd take a signet ring that had your seal and that signet was your authority and your identity. And you would take that and you'd press that into the melted wax. And then it would dry and it would seal that letter. And so simultaneously, it protected what was inside the letter. And it also identified the author and the authority of the letter at the same time. Does that make sense? You can see why Paul is using this word, yes? Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. This, this is the identity and authority of God 
placed inside you and I at the moment of salvation. Sphragizo. And it communicates two things to us here in these verses. God's ownership and God's protection. God's ownership and God's protection. What does the Holy Spirit do for you and I? Well, the first is ownership. Romans 8, 9 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. At the moment of salvation, when the Holy Spirit enters you, which is what the Bible tells us happens at the moment of salvation, you are now a son or daughter of the king. You're owned by him. It is the very presence of God in you that declares to the world, you have a new father. You are now a son or daughter of the king. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says this, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a very intimate term. It's like saying, Daddy. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's why Paul will use this term in Christ or in him nine times in these 14 verses. Paul will use this term in Christ 169 times in his New Testament letters. He's trying to emphasize that when you and I heard the truth and believed, simultaneously heard the truth, we heard this gospel, we heard what God had done for us, we heard that Jesus had died for us, we heard that we were sinners, and we believed. We believed in our heart, we declared with our mouths that when that happened, there was a radical transformation that occurred in him, in Christ, and that we no longer are the owners of ourselves. Now, we like to think of ourselves as owning ourselves. We're our own man. We love the idea of liberty and freedom in America. Come on, how many Americans love the idea of freedom and liberty? Don't lie to me. Everybody, right? We love it. We're willing to die for it. But what the Bible says is that outside of Christ, you didn't even own yourself, you weren't in charge of yourself, you, you, you were tricked and deceived into thinking that you were the owner of yourself, but in reality, you, you were following the prince of this world. The same person that Eve and Adam fell for in the garden. You didn't own yourself, you were owned by sin. You were enslaved to it. You had no freedom or liberty, and you would never do anything other than serve your flesh unless he saved you. And in him, in Christ, when that occurred, there was a radical transformation that, 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 that is the milestone of every Christian's life. There is before Jesus and after Jesus, and we measure everything based on that. The old self died in that transformation. The old self died with Christ. It was buried with Christ. It was crucified with Christ. And the new creation 
has been raised with Christ, and in Christ we are made new. We are sons and daughters of God. We are in a new family with a new heart and a new father and a new purpose and a new life and everything that you and I identified with and knew before Christ has died. And, it, and if you're clinging to it, you're clinging to dead bones. If you're looking at something outside of the identity that Christ has created based on his crucifixion and resurrection, and you're holding on to that, and you're trying to identify yourself by that, you're identifying yourself by bones in a grave. So, so if you look at yourself and you think, I, I'm special because I'm this way, or I was, I, because I'm this ethnicity, or because I, I, I think this way, or because of my, my parents in this fashion, or because I've acted this way, they're all dead bones. Because you're a new creation in Christ, and everything about your identity is actually wrapped up and encapsulated in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the, the very presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is the seal on this that says, you're mine. You're mine. Therefore, therefore, you're not, you're not in charge of your life anymore. You, you actually don't, you don't choose what to do. You ask what to do. Why? Because you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You're a new creation. Everything you knew before, you don't know now. There's a reason that, that we talk about new Christians as children. They didn't suddenly become children. They didn't, they didn't go back to being four years old. What happened? Everything's new. And when everything's new, you gotta relearn everything. It's why we have a great deal of grace and patience with new believers, amen? Because they're dumb. Oh my gosh, I was so dumb when I came to Christ. I thought I knew everything. The longer that you're a Christian, the more you realize you don't really know anything. Because God has to work that out in you. Anybody ever watched, the, there's so many movies and shows like this. Anybody ever watched a movie where someone is like a superhero or they have special powers, but they don't know they have it? And like some coach or some person has to like coax it out of them. Have you ever seen one of those? And, and, and so you get to watch a story about this person who contains this great power, this, this special ability or this superpower or something, but they don't realize it. And then so slowly you see, it, the, the, see the implications that life is different if they could just get their hands around. They could just wrap their minds around this, this special power. Man, everything would be different. I love watching those movies because I love watching those shows because every single one of them points right back to the cross, whether they know it or not. Because when the Holy Spirit enters your life and changes everything, you have this immense power. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing from above. You just don't know it yet. And, and most of what Paul talks about when he, he, he says for you know, 169 times in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, he, he's trying to communicate that, man, if, if you could just get out of your own way, and get your mind and your arms around what it means to be a son or a daughter of the king, you would have such life and life abundant that you, you'd walk in here every day just like, how could I not be grateful? How can I not be excited? How can I not be content? I, I, I drink from a water that I'll never again be thirsty. 
I serve a God who pulled me out of a grave, saved me, made me a new creation, put his spirit in me, and promised an inheritance. Christians should be the most thankful people on earth. Why aren't we? Why aren't we? Why aren't we? Thanksgiving should be every day. We can't eat like that. (laughs) I don't need a day to tell me to be thankful. I had a cross. And now the Spirit seals us and announces to the world that we have a new owner. Now, this is interesting to me. If the Spirit is the seal that announces the authority and the ownership of the document. And what the Holy Spirit does in us is largely internal. Then how does the world see this seal? How does the world outside of the believers, the non-Christian, how do they see or, or witness what the Spirit has done? I ask you this, how do you know what kind of fruit tree you're looking at when you look at it? What kind of fruit does it produce? Because I'll be honest, I can't tell any trees apart. They, they just have leaves until there's fruit. And if I see lemons, it's probably a lemon tree. Man, you guys are sharp today. If I see apples, it's probably an apple tree. The world sees the seal of the Spirit on you and I based on the spiritual fruit that is produced in our lives. Now, this has some implications, so I want you to track with me on this. We have a new father. We have a new hope. Something has happened to us, and the world is largely going to know that that occurred when they see the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, Christian, this is why you and I cannot blend in with the world. We can't. You cannot not produce fruit and be an apple tree, be a lemon tree. You have to produce fruit. That's what apple trees do. That's what lemon trees do. They produce fruit. What do Christians do? They produce fruit. If you say that you believe in Jesus and there is no change being wrought out in your life, being produced in your life, sometimes in opposition to you, right? Like I'm trying to go really hard this way and fruit is this way and the Holy Spirit is just, I love reading the little memes. It's like when the, when the Holy Spirit just tells you don't send the text, just delete the whole thing, right? And you're like, yep, 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 delete, delete, delete. Why? It, it, our salvation is worked out in fear and trembling. As the Holy Spirit internally works out that dead flesh, works out those things that died, and instead produces spiritual fruit. Now, I want you to stop for a moment and just consider something. Do those outside my church recognize the seal of the Spirit on my life? 
do those outside my church, those that maybe don't know anything about church? Do they recognize the seal of the Spirit on my life? Meaning not, did you run out and speak in tongues and then tell them it was the Holy Spirit? That's not what I mean. Largely, what we're going to see, the work of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do people outside the church see the work of the Spirit on my life, listen, and are attracted to it? They're attracted to it because these things are attractive. Listen, when you meet someone that is just genuinely patient, it is attractive, joyful, loving, gentle with you, you want to spend time around them. You want to know what's not attractive? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. See, I'm just reading the fruit of the flesh to you. I skip the ones we like to spend uh, our time on, you know, sexual immorality and sorcery, because we're like, I'm not Harry Potter. I haven't done any of that recently. And I read the ones that we all suffer from, impurity, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, idolatry. We like to call it something else. I'm just a good parent. We'll get to that another day. When the church, Christian, produces more dissension than fruit of the Spirit, where is the seal of the Holy Spirit? When the church produces more rivalry, more envy, more division than fruit of the Spirit, what's attracting the the non-believing world to the church or to Christ? the very seal that has been pressed upon our hearts with God's signet ring is meant to produce fruit so that a non-believing world sees salt to the earth and a light in a dark world. If we're considering the work of the Spirit on our lives and, and we can't see from others, particularly those outside the church, how they're visibly seeing the work of the Spirit In our lives, we should stop and take a pause for a minute because there's a problem that's not at all how this was designed. That means we've lost sight of the identity of what Christ did in us when he put to death our flesh and raised up a new creation that's now owned by him. And a Christian who forgets their identity is a dangerous thing. A dangerous thing. And listen, in in the culture that we have today, church, everybody wants to tell you who you should be. Everybody's got an opinion on what should be important in your life. Now, most of those, oddly enough, make money if you agree with them, right? Like, if you need to be a little bit thinner, it's probably somebody that telling you that is, I mean, if your doctor's telling you that, you should listen. But if it's a gym or a new diet product or some essential oils, I would raise an eyebrow. 
if you're supposed to be more attractive, isn't it interesting how the people that tell you you should be more attractive generally selling clothes, makeup, electrolysis, right? Something. Everybody's got an opinion on who you should be. You can't turn on a television. You can't open social media. You can't, you can't look at any piece of news today and not get some sort of statement about who you're supposed to be and how you're falling short. Unless you open the Bible. Unless you open the Bible. And when you open the Bible, here's what you're going to hear. You already fell short. Don't worry. I got you. And I put my spirit in you to power the transformation that needs to occur. And all you need to do is remember who you are. That's the work of the spirit. You can't fake fruit, Christian. If it's not being produced, people will see. Your fruit, the faith that leads to action, the faith that leads to transformation becomes your most powerful testimony to the world. Largely, the world is not going to ask you for a lot of facts about the Bible. It will happen. You should study. But largely, what they're going to do is observe your life, look at what fruit is being produced, and name you that tree. And if you spend your time and your effort in worldly pursuits, you're going to be named that tree by the world. If what largely takes up your time is work, at some point people think you're a work tree. If what largely captures your heart, your attention, your money, your time, your effort, your energies, your kids, at some point you're a family tree. But you may not be a son or a daughter of the king. What the Bible says is our identity was completely changed at the moment of salvation. And when God put his spirit in us, he sealed us for the day of our inheritance. And everything you do from that point forward is trying to remind yourself that you are now a son or a daughter of the king. So live that way. Live that way. You have inexpressible, inexhaustible spiritual blessings. But most of us are struggling to figure out what they are and how to take a part in them. Your very life, Christian, is on display. To be a salt to the earth, to be light in the dark. The gospel is primary. Listen to me about evangelism. The gospel is primarily only truly effective when people see it lived out in you. They can read about the gospel all day long, but it doesn't make sense until they see it in you, till they watch it in you, till they're impacted by the gospel in your life. That's when its power is on display. When people see how it has humbled me, how it has driven me to repentance, how it has caused me to become gentle, how it compels me to honor others and bear with their burdens, then the gospel becomes real to the lost. It is also for our protection. So the two things that this seal does is it offers identity around the ownership of us and it offers us protection. You see, the protection of the seal, it was a guarantee. When I, when, when I melted that wax on the command, on the legal document, on the letter, and I pressed that signet ring into it, it was a protection 
that if someone were to try to get in, we would know that it was now false. So it was a protection for you and I. What is that protection from the authority of the Spirit in our lives? Well, two things. It protects us from ourselves, and it protects us from demonic possession. Uh, One interesting thing about being saved is uh, we read these weird stories in the New Testament about people being possessed by demons. You cannot be a believer and be possessed by a demon. Why? You, You can't have the Spirit of God in you and a demon. But largely, it protects us from ourselves. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God with his spirit in you is transforming you and simultaneously protecting you from yourself. The Holy Spirit protects me from me. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, this is our invocation today, what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Spirit protects me from my sinful flesh. The lingering effects of being stuck in this old body that has not been glorified and won't be until I get to heaven is that there's still a sinful nature here in this flesh. But when God puts His Spirit in you, He gives you a real conscience. He begins to build in you and I a desire to please God that was not there before. I feel conviction when I sin. I hurt when I realize I've hurt other people. The Spirit protects me in these ways. Primarily, I would say there are three things the Spirit is doing in protection of you. A conviction, which is regret for sin. Conviction, which is regret for sin. A hope, which is excitement for the future. Hope, which is excitement for the future. And compulsion, which is a desire to please God and be unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ. A compulsion to please God and be unified with you. And if you and I, once we're saved, once God has put his spirit in us, begins to push back against these things that the spirit's doing, that the Bible will call this grieving the spirit, right? You're literally fighting the Holy Spirit inside you. It doesn't feel good, does it, believer? No, you've all done it, yes. Got really quiet, but I know you're being honest. Come on. We've all fought the work of the Spirit in our lives. That's why, that's why the Bible says you're working out your salvation in fear and trembling. The fear and trembling is that I'm fighting with the Holy Spirit, and I really don't like that. I know that he's right. Ephesians 4.30 puts it this way. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were, where's that word? Sealed for the day of redemption. And I, I, I can do that. There's conviction, regret from sin, and I can push back, right? And I can, in my mind, 
come up with all the justifications for why I did what I did and why it wasn't really sin and why I was actually justified and that other person should really be the person that should come and apologize to me. No? None of you, just me. Okay, it's just me. Things begin to get out of control in my, in my work life, in my home life, in my relationships. They're just not going the way that I anticipated they were going to go. And I begin to lose hope and excitement for the future because I, I can't see the future anymore. And I'm not standing on the promises of God, but instead I'm, I'm looking at my circumstances and I just can't see how God would actually be glorified in this. And maybe there's no hope. I'm on the boat and Jesus is taking a nap and clearly he doesn't know what's going on and he's not in control and I got to go wake him up, right? Wrong. We, we lose hope for the future when, when we begin to grieve the Spirit, we begin to push back on the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a compulsion to desire to please God and be unified together, but we spend our time in petty rivalries and dissensions. How many different church names have you come across? You go to Texas, and on the same road, there'll be like Hatpeg Church and non-Hatpeg First Baptist. Couldn't get along on where to hang our hats, so we made another church. Grieving in the spirit. Looking forward, it's our last verse, 14. Looking forward to our inheritance. We've been given a down payment. That is what this guarantee is actually called. This seal is a guarantee. That guarantee is the word Araborn, which is a down payment for our inheritance. What you and I experience today in the fellowship of believers, the unity that is being built by the Holy Spirit as we learn to love one another is the down payment. It is just a glimpse, just a taste of the inheritance that we have in heaven. We'll never fully see that here on earth, what, what, what completely awaits us in heaven. We'll never, get the, we'll never get the full picture. But we get a glimpse of it. I want to read you this quote from Alexander McLaren about how God is building a glimpse of heaven as we begin to unite together as brother and sister in Christ. He says this, when these words were spoken, the then known civilized world was cleft by great deep gulfs of separation, like the crevasses in a glacier, by the side of which our racial animosities and our class differences that we have today are merely superficial cracks on the surface. Back then, language, religion, national animosities, differences of condition, and saddest of all, difference of sex split the world into alien fragments. In Greek, a stranger and an enemy were expressed in the same word. If you were a stranger, you were an enemy. They didn't have separate words for that. The learned and the unlearned, the slave and his master, the barbarian and the Greek, the man and the woman stood on opposite sides of the gulfs, flinging hostility across. Then the benefits of the gospel came. Then the barbarian, Scythian, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, clasped hands and sat down at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. They were ready to break all bonds. The unity that the Holy Spirit creates in us as we come together is a glimpse, a taste of the inheritance that awaits us. We have so many reasons to praise God. I want to, here at the end of this series, just remind you of what those are. Number one, 
He blessed us immensely. God chose us unconditionally. God adopted us adoringly. He redeemed us graciously. He forgave us completely. He showed grace to us lavishly. He revealed his mystery wisely. He granted us inheritance eternally. He sealed us permanently. And he guaranteed our salvation personally on the cross. Our job, church, in light of these truths, is to cling to God and to fight for unity in our church. To not grieve the Spirit, but to be desperate for Jesus, desperate for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that produces the fruit of the Spirit that not only transforms you and I, it brings us together, it creates unity in the church, and it is a declaration. It is getting on the mountaintops and shouting out the gospel to a lost world. And we don't do that by getting on a street corner with a bullhorn and the billboard signs and yelling at people as they drive by. We do that by submitting to the work of the Spirit, by becoming more humble, by becoming more patient, by becoming more gentle, by bearing with one another's burdens to such an extent that it becomes impossible to ignore the work of the Spirit in our lives and the people around us begin to finally go, look, whatever that is that you're drinking, I want some of that. It's the gospel lived out, which is the only way it's effectively declared in a lost world, is lived out in you and I. And we do that by getting up every day, remembering what we have to be thankful for, and submitting to the work of the Spirit in our lives. We're going to partake in communion in just a moment. Now, just ask you this. What has to change in your life to get out of the way of the Holy Spirit's work that he's doing? What has to change in my life? What do I have to kill off? What do I have to remind myself of? What do I have to give up? What do I have to identify in my life that has to change so the Spirit can do the work of the Spirit. I don't know what that is for you. I would ask that you prayerfully consider that today. Bow with me real quickly. Let me pray over you. Father God, as we get ready to partake in communion and remember your sacrifice, God, I just, I ask you to remind every person here or participating online, God, would you remind us of our identity. God, would you just fill us with the presence of your spirit that is so impossible for us to ignore, God. We would just be overwhelmed by your love for us, your grace and mercy for us, the work that you want to do through us, God. 
Would you just continue to work out your salvation in each of us with fear and with trembling and with humility and with gentleness and with long-suffering, God? Would you help us to be a church that when people outside the walls of the church look at us, all they can look at is people who are grateful and thankful for your Spirit's work in us. God, make us into your image. Change us, God. At the very core of who we are, God, remind us that we are not who we used to be. Help us to wrap our minds and our arms around the fact, God, that we are a new creation in you. And nothing will ever be the same for us. In Jesus' name, amen.